Before we start talking about the music, it is important that we get to know the people themselves. So I sat down with Bob and Barn and asked them, how did your careers start? And starting with Barn, we find out about some lengthy, very, very impressive careers. I started, um, now they part of history of me, I started writing music uh, for the Commodore Amiga uh, back in 1990. Actually, I wasn't writing music before then, but my first actual gig was for a game called Swiv on the Amiga, yes, which came out in early 1991. So I was originally part of the Amiga demo scene. I was writing music using uh, various tracker programs, sound tracker, pro tracker, noise tracker. And yeah, I did all this in a parallel career whilst I was studying for un- at university uh, from about 19, about 1992 to about 1995, six from college and at university. And then I moved to Cambridge uh, to work as the first in-house composer at a games company called Millennium Interactive. Uh, the reason I moved to Cambridge, the reason I chose Millennium, is basically because they built the best recording studio I had ever seen. Uh, up until that point, I was uh, mucking around on the university recording studios, which are involving uh, a 16-track quarter-inch tape. So it was a little bit of a... Uh, uh, rather shocked the system to come and get involved in a, uh, to the geek aware, a 32-track Pro Tools-based hard disk recording system very, very early on in the games industry. And the reason why uh, I went in-house in games is because sort of, I suppose the games industry, from my perspective, mirrors how film and TV used to work where everyone was kind of staff. Everyone member of staff. And prior to that, being a freelancer, I mean, literally, I was sent VHS tapes of games and go write music for this and i was just you know far more interested in actually how the game comes together it felt you know it felt quite devoid of being uh, of being connected with the rest of the team and so therefore uh, but back in the 90s uh, the job of an in-house composer was actually quite commonplace so i thought i would uh, i'll apply for one lad i managed to get my uh, my job in with uh, millennium and uh bob paul arnold joined a year later over to bob yeah actually um my my way into the world of games was through academia. I did a master's degree at York University and the job at what became Sony Cambridge Studios was prior to that Millennium Interactive was, was advertised on the internet there. I didn't see it, but um, uh, one of my student colleagues uh, did see it and got himself set up for an interview. He was gonna be buying a house actually, um, you know, long way from Cambridge. And so decided it didn't make sense to go to the interview and said to me, would you like to go instead? So I phoned up, booked an interview, went along. In the interim, his house fell through. He also came for the interview and of course I, I got it and, and he didn't, which was rather awkward for a little while. But um, I'm happy to say we are both still very good friends, thank God. Bob and I met in uh, 1996. As as you said, he was employed as the uh, the second sound person. Initially not actually initially not doing music, and uh, but uh, Sony bought the company in 1997. Uh, at that point in time, I'll t- I'll let Bob talk about his music stuff. And we uh, we chose to uh, leave the safe employ of uh, a salaried a salaried employment and go freelance and form Bob and Barn in 2001. Yeah, my. Um my journey into music was was interesting because, I, as Barnes said, I, I started working at Millennium Interactive, really doing all the o- other audio jobs that was anything but music. That was really Barnes' job. But of course, I wanted to write music. I mean, I was qualified in, in doing that. And, and th- you know, that was always my creative preference. So um, 
on one occasion where we weren't very busy, Barn was away, I think, which was um, my opportunity to get into the studio and try and write a track. And um, it turns out it was for Medieval. And our brief was to write Danny Elfman style music. And so I just dived straight in. I had to listen to the CD, kind of did a analysis on, you know, chords and rhythm and harmony and melody and so on. And um, came up with a track and it, and it made its way into the game in the end. So it couldn't have been all that bad. And that kind of started me on the path of uh, writing music. And Barn and I worked together really from that point. And, and as he said, then we, we left and set up our own freelance facility kind of five years later. Medieval has a very distinctive and impressive soundtrack. But we've got to know, how did all of that come about? The brief initially was, uh, well, in fact, we, we discussed it with Sony and we said that what we'd really like to do is to write some original music. And nobody was really against that, although we were very aware of the fact that this was a remake and, and, and not a sort of a development on the franchise. We essentially, Barn and I sat down and we, we decided that we'd start with the what was the intro to the old graveyard tune, start with that, but then develop it into something new. And, and overall, what we both wanted to do was to do an entirely new score. You know, this was this was a chance to be creative again in that world that we love so much. But having done this first tune, I think I think we, we hit the right mark in terms of the tone and the feel of it. Sony were certainly very happy on that front. But it was clear right from the get-go that, that they wanted something much, much closer to the original. So it kind of defined the brief a little bit for us as we went along. Um, Sony felt that we needed to be much close to the original tracks, but there were a few places where the original score was was clearly weak and a bit light, particularly the boss battles at the end um, lacked depth musically and we were reusing an awful lot of stuff from, from other levels. And, um, and there were one or two other levels which are also very, very sound design heavy. And again, we felt were musically very weak, and it gave it gave a few opportunities throughout the score to to introduce something new, and it felt like a really nice balance across the entire game that we would have you know a few new tracks interspersed for you know the new audience, the people that perhaps have never played it before, along with all the old stuff for for the nostalgia geeks out there who absolutely love the original game and really can't bear it to be meddled with in any way. Being a remake, this was of course likely to have some stumbling stones, some steps in the way, as well as a multitude of challenges. But with challenges also come opportunity, as Barn explains. Because this is a remake, the problem we had, the first Medieval, 1998, it's the first time I'd ever written an orchestral score. Bob came and joined me with us. We'd never written anything before. My music for games prior to that was more, I would say, more traditional in the, in the gaming style. This... The uh, designer and uh, lead programmer of the game, Chris Sowell, he had a very clear idea what he wanted musically because the game visually took a lot of references from the uh, uh, Tim Burton and Henry Selick film Nightmare Before Christmas as well as the uh, 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 Konami classic arcade game from the 80s, Ghouls and Ghosts and Ghosts and Goblins. He had a very clear idea of what the game should feel like tonally and visually. And therefore, it made a lot of sense musically to follow that and the great thing about it as as you already mentioned Danny Elfman Danny Elfman is, is an iconic uh com film composer in his own you know you know has done for many many years and his association with Tim Burton is uh, goes incredible you know goes back as long as 
along with this. And uh, so it was very important that actually, because you've established a visual tone, actually the, uh, the uh, musical tone should kind of reflect that. And what Danny Elfman does very, very well is he has what I, thought I like to think of as sort of a gothic comedy. He, uh, his way he orchestrates, the way it's a lot of fun in his scores. A lot of, it's very, very playful and tonally it hits it, uh, it hits the notes perfectly. But we never done anything like that before. So, both, fortunately, both of us were musically trained. We could extrapolate, take a Danny Elfman score and work out what, what made his, what made his uh, score sound like a Danny Elfman score. It was a little bit too comedic, so they also gave us references for Interview with Vampire by Elliot Goldenthal and Dracula by Wozniak Kila. And they were born more horror things. So it was a sort of an amalgam of the two. But given that we'd never written orchestral score before, we weren't doing it in a, with the Royal Orchestra, because back in those days it really wasn't the dumb thing. So it was like literally taking one synthesizer, one sampler, and two guys who'd never actually written for an orchestra before, uh, even synthetically, to try and produce a score. So there were a lot of... You know, you get you look, and that was back in 1998. So you have this wonderful creative, creative opportunity to come back to something you did many years ago, and fingers crossed, improve upon it. Not only improve upon it to the fact that you're going to record it with an orchestra and all that stuff, but also technically, hopefully, we've improved in 20 years, having you know a fair a fair amount of experience now writing for a real orchestra. So you look back on those original scores and go. Oh, I would never do that again. Oh, I would never do that. I mean, like the melodies and everything else, people loved them. And we actually knew that. And in fact, when people came back to us, that was the comments we had. Actually, we loved that melody. We loved that idea. But what we could do is sort of take that top line melody and everything underneath it, our complement, our backing, our harmony, that was seemed quite, how should I put it nicely, basic. And therefore, we, are, we had the opportunity there to sort of reinvent that and hopefully apply 20 years of, a, uh, of techniques that we've, uh, that we've learned and try to apply that to music here. But still make it sound to many people like the original medieval score to kind of honour its legacy. And then you've got, a, then you've got the uh, combined with the fact that now we can do an interactive score. Bear in mind, again, in 1998, scores weren't interactive. Uh, the medieval tracks, because the game was kind of like sort of mid-paced, it wasn't particularly fast, it wasn't particularly slow, because the music didn't reflect how the action was going to happen on screen, all you could do was hopefully pick a sort of a mid-tempo and hopefully the music would sort of hopefully not be too slow, not be too quick, and sort of somewhere in between the two. Because you couldn't have seamless looping on the PlayStation, uh, you, the, the track, therefore, it, be, it was better to start it at a low point, have the biggest point in the middle, end at a low point, so when it looped, hopefully then the listener wouldn't notice the uh, the loop point too, too closely. Now, we have all the bells and whistles you can do with an interactive score on the PS4. So, again, the challenge was, how do you keep it so it sounds like the original medieval tune, but actually, so it unfolds and uh, does all those progressions, which you can now do with an interactive score. Now, this was this was yeah, this is a bit of a uh, bit of a not bit of a kind of a head, bit of a bit of bit, bit of grey matter had to be applied here. How do we take this? And and one, I mean, we had this amazing team at Sony America, who were very good at this kind of thing, and they were saying, "How about you do this? How about you do this?" They gave us some great ideas, and also they were very good at listening to our rather crazy, ambitious ideas of. Adding, uh, adding new layers to each track, making them in m- much more densely composed, but 
Because you could play everything back in stems, you could choose what you were to play back. You could then choose what few elements you would play at the same time. Uh, but because there were so many elements to choose from, it meant that the score itself became a lot more progressive. It didn't sound anywhere near as repetitive. And that was the key thing I wanted to avoid, was making sure it just didn't, didn't repeat. Because the game could take, you know, your, your average level could take, you know, especially early levels, about 10 minutes to complete. You've got two and a half minute tracks. You don't really want to hear the same two and a half minute track four times, which is what happened on the original. But therefore, it was about defining which points throughout the level you would sort of initial part of the level. You might hear the first kind of 40 seconds of the track uh, from the original game, but with other elements so that it was repeated a few times and you could hear other things coming in and out, have different melodies on different instruments. And then as you went for a certain point in the level, so like you opened a door, you, you opened a key or something, and then the next part of the level will carry on. And then you would hear these new parts of the track and so on and so forth. So by the end of the level, you've actually heard this two and a half minute track, but extended the point where it might be play along about 10 minutes and you wouldn't have heard the same part twice. So all of these things uh, made made it much more complicated to do, but actually, the key thing was to make it sound like it actually really was an original medi uh, like the original medieval tracks, just a lot more complicated things in the background. So with that in mind, then writing new original tracks, actually, in that perspective, touching wood, it actually was reasonably easy because we had spent many years, you know, with the th first three medieval games kind of coming up with a medieval formula. What makes a medieval track a medieval track? And this is like riding a bike. Having not done it since the last time we did it was 2004 for Medieval Resurrection, it will literally was like a 15-year gap. How can we do it? And it was literally like riding a bike. As soon as we started having a go, both of us sat down there and like ideas were flowing. We were flow I both of us were like throwing things in the mix. Like, how about that? How about that? How about how that? And it started. It was like, wow, we can do medieval tracks. Unsurprisingly, because we've kind of come up with a formula. So yeah, it was that there was so much scope to expand it but at the same time we also wanted to make sure that we honored the legacy of the original from composing music for a video game to writing for tv or more specifically composing the music for a video game in a tv series channel 4's dead pixels featured some incredible music all brought to life by bob and barn and as bob explains here that was very very unusual in the way they approached this Actually, that's an interesting one. I don't know whether to make up a complete lie or whether to tell you the truth on that one. But uh, basically, um, a fair amount of the music is made out of our back catalogue of, of music that we've composed for other stuff, let's say. Um, predominantly Primal, the video game Primal. We own the rights to, to use that outside of video games. And, um, and it just seemed like a perfect fit for this particular um, scenario because it's a big um, action adventure fantasy game and it's a wonderful opportunity for them to to drop that stuff in there and have live orchestral music big scale production but obviously they wouldn't have the budget to actually go and do all of that stuff originally so that the the content of the the world itself the kingdom scrolls world is pretty much the music from from primal um, but of course, we still have to write bespoke music that that uh, fits in around that and and is tailored to each of the scenarios that we have throughout different episodes. So I remember one thing I had to do um, was that that Meg had this big rousing speech where she's talking about just how thin the lives are that they both lead in life, and um, and. And she's, but she's saying, but we have got this. We've got Kingdom Scrolls. So it's almost like a call to arms. And um, so we wanted some kind of, you know, 
presidential rousing speech music for that so um you know all of that kind of stuff would would be written bespoke um as as we go through each and every episode and there was some source music that that barn had to recreate because um one of the characters was learning to play the flute and and he had to mimic exactly what she was discussing that she was playing and and so on and make it match kind of finger movements and things on the screen so the the job is is wide and quite varied in terms of the skill set required i would let me just jump in now and say actually the interesting thing about kingdom skulls uh, sorry uh, dead pixels was initially it was a part of channel force comedy blaps uh, there was, I think, three three-minute episodes, and originally it was called Avatars. This was kind of like a pre-pilot, effectively, to see if it was going to be successful or not. And the producer, we'd, we'd worked with the producer before a few years ago, and he said, you guys are perfect fit, you're games composers, and this is actually a, and a TV composer, and this is kind of a combination of both. As Bob said, the the clear thing is that because there was very little budget they had here, we had we had this amazing opportunity. Well, actually, we can give you a live orchestral scores. And in fact, because we were given the score, because Primal, which is a PS2 game which came out in 2003, was effectively a fantasy RPG, King of Scrolls is a fantasy MMO RPG. So it really couldn't be pretty much more authentic. But what, as you said, it gave it gave them a scope to have a much bigger sounding, a much more authentic sounding um, score for a game. But and because we gave them our access to our effectively our old old back catalogue library, uh, they did. They picked things. They kind of cherry picked the tracks they wanted from it. And in fact, they picked a track we uh, which was a pitch for a game for Konami, which unfortunately never got never came out. And they picked that as what they call Tanadal's theme. Tanadal being the main protagonist in Kingdom Scrolls. And the interesting about that is that because they had they'd picked this main melody, we actually gave us an opportunity to actually be a little bit sort of a little bit clever and a little bit subtle. And we started to imbue these this theme amongst other things throughout the show. For example, uh, at the one point they're uh, they're playing, I think they're playing Kingdom Scrolls, the mobile phone version, which we did the mobile phone version of that. So we had eight bits uh, chip music sounding put the same theme in there there was an episode uh, as a part in episode five where um where nikki is a little bit freaked out by the fact that he's just beaten his dad in the game and he's sitting there in the dark at, late at night listening to some very bizarre uh, experimental jazz and the, the normal housemate allison comes in with her new boyfriend and says you want nick or anything else and he's just listened to this uh, this effectively this piece of radio uh, this piece of music on the radio but he said can you recreate that so we did the whole kind of tour and off anything that but i could do that in a way it actually was much more mimicked what happened in the scene. I couldn't make it to pop a sound and pitch. I couldn't like change the tempo because it would kind of like defeat the object. But I could actually make it so it kind of grew and it's and it sort of like went down and up and depending on how Nick reacted. So at that point I could also do a uh, experimental jazz version of the theme in there, which I'm sure most ninety nine percent of people would never have noticed. But those kind of things are really quite good fun to do. So you're going from eight bit music, you've got or live orchestral stuff, which is our backlog, something which we've also written ourselves to kind of like glue scenes together, which they couldn't get from the art catalogue, and other such scenes as, as such as the experimental jazz. In fact, I'm currently working on season two. I'm actually writing the Kingdom Scrolls theme now, uh, today, in fact. So, yes, it's been a really interesting process because, again, now that there's sort of season two of Kingdom Scrolls, how do you progress? What would be, how, what would you do it? in the traditional gaming world and can you then sort of bring this into the TV world to kind of keep it as authentic and fingers crossed we're doing that at the moment 
This musical duo have also worked on a number of scores on a number of TV programs, movies, series and video games. And it would be remiss of me not to ask what their favourite work was. Barn and I, I think we come from different sort of musical angles. Uh, Barn's very much into sort of funk and jazz. And I very much grew up listening to um, cheesy hair metal and rock music. And um, one of the things that we ended up producing um, was a library music album of orchestral rock, if you like. And for me, I think that was that was something that I found particularly satisfying. I love the scale and epic nature of it. And, and because I've always loved rock music and, and that kind of thing, just seeing the process and the production that went into that and how we produced the guitars, for example, and double and quadruple tracked in some cases to create a big, thick, fat sound was really satisfying. And, and that was something, even though it was really only for library, I mean, it's it's popped up in all kinds of different places on TV. That was something that I found particularly satisfying and enjoyable to do. And I think I would also allude to that and say, well, actually, as a precursor to that, the reason why that happened in the first place is because uh, we had just finished doing a score for a uh, racing game called Sega Rally Sega Rally Revo in the States and that was quite it was a really interesting project to work on but the one thing we ended up doing as Bob said was sort of doing some orchestral rock so you've got a big orchestra and a massive rock band and in fact the title music we ended up doing was actually in a weird time signature and because we'd enjoyed doing that when Audio Network the library company came and approached us and said we'd like to do something else they said what would you want to do and we said how about that and they went all right, go in and do it. It's like, it's just brilliant. It's the way it should be. And uh, so, yeah, that kind of thing works really well. I also love, you know, for me, I love funk and disco music. So I've actually, and a bit of jazz. So I've actually had quite an enjoyment, quite an enjoyable time sort of trying to mix those things in. And in fact, I was also, I said, there's one genre which both of us have enjoyed right, adding a lot, and it's world music. Uh, I think the first project we actually worked on kind of in the world music genre was a game called Kung Fu Chaos, uh, which came out on the original Xbox in 2003. Uh, it was a little uh, little game where you had four characters effectively kicking shit out of each other across uh, badly recreated film sets, uh, geographically going from a dojo in uh, in China all the way to, through to the uh, the New York skyline. They're mimicking various films along the way. You've got Titanic, you've got Jurassic Park, you've got Mars Attacks. And the music, therefore, went on a journey. So back, you know, in 2003, we're like, well, how would we do this? And I seem to remember the first thing we did was like, we literally, I just Googled Chinese music and see what happened. And I found a website, chinesemusic.co.uk. There was a lovely chap in Rushton, which is not a million miles away from us, uh, who actually was a Chinese guy who had a lot of connections back with uh, Chinese musicians in, in native China. And we were like, well, actually, we want to make this really authentic. So he ended up being a really good go-between for us and helping us to to get, facilitate and teach us all about different instruments we, which we could use and work with. And in some cases, even transcribing our Western scores to Chinese notation, which is a fascinating read. And so this sort of started our sort of love of, uh, of ethnic ethnic instruments which we then carried on uh in games we actually i think we did some of that in neverwinter nights and in fact we also did some of that mo i think the, my most prominent use of it was a game called brink which i think came out in 2011 where which has had a whole menagerie of, of ethnic musicians percussionists and and so on and so forth so i think i really enjoyed that kind of thing how do you so i, th- I thought i suppose ultimately what's what we like doing we like mixing stuff together i think that was the thing but as a games composer, it, it became 
it sort of you became less sort of rigid. You became a lot more like, what can we do? Let's give it a whirl. Let's see what. I, and it was great because people seemed to be quite open to the idea of us mixing these in, mixing these random uh, collection of instruments together and see what comes out. Unfortunately, it seems to have done a right for us too. Some of the more unique work produced by Bob and Barn was in fact in the form of the video game Brink, which held on to a lot of world music approaches. Rather than sticking for a single, very simple soundtrack, they decided to vary it greatly. And there are a number of different instruments and songs used throughout that really do show this. But don't bother asking me, why not ask the men themselves? Barn is here to explain exactly what influenced and what helped create the soundtrack behind Brink. We used a uh, probably UK sort of premier world percussionist guy called Pete Lockett. He played about the 30 different instruments for us uh, from his massive collection. We had Tuvan vocals. We had a Chinese ehu, which is the most sublime sounding string instrument. We used their, uh, their dulcimer, the harp, uh, various gongs, various other percussion instruments. It was a wonderful uh, smorgasbord of unusual ethnic instruments. Because I think largely it was, it was what was really helpful at is because the the game was a, a real sort of mixture of two very different factions: the resistance, who I kind of largely think of as the rebels, and uh, security, who I like to think of that the empire. Security, uh, they lived in the in the, the nice palatial, nice, uh, wealthy environments within uh, within the brink, uh, the Ark, I think it was called, locale. Uh, they had money, they had they had clean environments where the resistance, I like to think of more like the Wombles, where they were li- living in and amongst all the scrap and all the, uh, the reuse, recycle stuff. So we felt like we could make their music far more kind of throw it together or what you can make do with and therefore we could use that and sort of give it a very unique tone. Also helped that the uh, the lead the lead designer of the game was a, an avid musician himself, an avid percussionist, and he was very. In fact, when he first came to us, his, the first brief was actually, "Can you do the entire score percussively?" And I sort of, as remember saying, actually, no, for the simple reason that what sound do you generally hear in a first-person shooter more than anything else? It's probably the shout of the guns. What sound would percussion instruments make? So literally the music would sound far too similar to the sound design. But we found a halfway house as we discovered an instrument called a hang drum. Hang drum was invented in 2000 in Switzerland. And they're quite rare, quite hard to get hold of. I suppose if you think of them, they look a bit like a UFO, kind of in an inverted steel drum. But you sort of tap different parts of it and it comes up with this wonderful tone. So it's percussive, but at the same time it was also melodic. So this gave you the opportunity to have sort of like a halfway house. And that became a strong proponent, uh, a strong uh, sound of Brink. And I felt, the thing is though, you couldn't write a two and a half hour score with one hang drum. You needed a variety. Most musicians only had one. Fortunately, we found one guy who had five and he would then actually was touring the world at the time and he, bless him, he took all his recording instrument with him and he would, uh, after a gig, go and do a session for us in his hotel room with his microphones, send it over to us and then travel the country to another country and then after a gig would do another thing for us. It was a real, yeah, it's a real um, mixture of sounds and one we loved doing. In the course of composing music, Bob and Barn have also worked with a number of incredible musicians. As Bob explains here, when pinpointing just one or two of the spectacular, talented people. I'd say it's really hard to, to single people out because they're all brilliant in their own ways. We've got a guy, Louis Thorne, who comes and plays for us all the time and he's a very talented multi-instrumentalist and that's that's very, very useful for us. And, and, he, and he knows different musical genres as well, which is also very helpful because we get so many 
wide and varied briefs and pitches and things that we have to do and and louis just great because you know he comes over with his bass and his lap steel and his dobro and his uh you know his 12 string and his and his six string and seven string and god knows what else he's got he's got such a huge wide variety of instruments it usually solves a problem for us and what's also great with him is is that we have a good rapport so you know if we've written a backing track or we've written a kind of a rough lead line of something he's very good at, at picking that up by ear very quickly and then elaborating on it make it work on his instrument in a way that perhaps you know us playing a sample back from a keyboard doesn't so Lou is brilliant and you know there's there's another guy Alex Reeves who's who's been playing for us pretty much since we went freelance and and his career has skyrocketed over the years um but you know in the beginning he was living and working in Cambridge um but ended up playing drums for initially Dizzy Rascal Bat Flashes um and now finds himself the the drummer for Elbow and I think he's also drummed on some Razorlight albums. So he's done incredibly well, but unsurprisingly, because he is an absolutely fabulous drummer. But he still works for us. And um, he did something for us uh, at Christmas for a TV show called Richard Osman's uh, World Cup of the Decade. So those guys were great. And, and actually another drummer that we work with, Ian Thomas, um, he played on that, that Rock Trailers um, album, the, the orchestral rock album that we talked about. Just an unbelievable talent because... He'd never heard any of these tracks before he stepped into the studio. So he, he had this incredible ability to, he just had a very quick shorthand, which he understood. He'd listen through the track a couple of times, make his notes, and then he'd go into the live room and he'd just nail it. Like never trip up on any of the tricky things. Like we had a five, four bar at the end of every eight bar phrase in one piece never ever missed a single beat in that never once got it wrong and then really because he was so good at that it was really just a case of discussing you know feel and how aggressive we want his take to be and it was just it was a real masterclass in in how to be a session musician i've never seen anything quite like that before so yeah but i definitely single him out but really all all the guys that we work with i mean they're they're just brilliant and they're so adaptable and flexible and working with them is always so easy it's you know it's hard to single one person out really it wouldn't be an interview for the evening arcade if i didn't throw in one or two curveballs along the way so i asked bob and barn just exactly what kind of project they'd love to make if they had unlimited budget if they didn't have to worry about constraints of any kind what would they love to work on Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I personally, I'm a, you know, I'm a massive sci-fi nerd, unapologetically. So, of course, it'd be lovely to work on a big sci-fi film or a big sci-fi show. Just a big, something really big and juicy. Obviously, as you say, we've done a lot of work in the fantasy world. So, again, fantasy would be, uh, will be something which would be quite fun to work with as well. So, yeah, I think, yeah, something, just something big and epic. Something will give us something to really kind of like throw in our juice. Yeah, get something juicy into it. For me, um, I love a good psychological thriller. So, you know, a, a feature film in that kind of vein or a, or actually I think we'd both really love to do big production TV series. You know, that that would be really amazing. And being able to help tell the story and enlarge, and if you like, on the emotional content, that's, that's something that we both really enjoy doing. So in both cases, the common denominator is big and epic. So I think that's that's definitely something. But but for me, um, psychological thrillers where my heart's at. 
Now, admittedly, we've only touched on a couple of the projects that Bob and Barn have worked on throughout the course of their careers. So I asked them, what exactly have they been working on more recently? What kind of projects have they been exploring in more recent years? In December, or you know, the last couple of months of last year, we were working on, I mean, it was such a varied work. We were working on a quiz show for Endemol, which was completely electronic, very synthetic, very contemporary sounding thing. We are working on the uh, this TV show called Richard Osmond's Work, work Up the Decade, which was uh, much more kind of like, more like 60s and 70s funk. You know, that was much more like, well, in fact, we had a lot of live instruments and brass shakes and everything else. So very, very different from that. We're working on our first, uh, first romantic comedy, it's our 10th feature film. Uh, it's coming out uh, later in the year called Me, Myself and Die. So a very acoustic sounding score for that. Lots of guitars and strings and, and in fact a, uh, a proper northern brass band, brass choreo band. And yeah, so and then whilst doing all of the uh, various bits of uh, catching up with people about medieval. So it really is. You sort of sometimes you have to sit there and switch your brain from completely different genres sometimes in the same day. Because some people will come back and say, well, can we, can we fix that? Can we change that? Can you do that? And it is a real kind of like, uh, you have to really get your head on <laughs> to when, you're, when you're trying to switch between such, such varied genres, in some cases, in, a, in the same day. But we love it, though. That's kind of what makes this job fun. Let's not beat around the bush. We are a radio show that talks about video games. And it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask Bob and Barn exactly what kind of games, what kind of TV series, what kind of films they've been enjoying recently. I'm not really that much of a, a games player. Um, I'm more into movies and TV. Currently at the moment, for example, I've been watching through the elementary TV series. I absolutely love that. And I love the way Johnny Lee Miller plays the character. Uh, it's just for me, that's wonderful. I, I love like trying to second guess, you know, who it might be and so on. It is unbelievably addictive. And I, I love the kind of the spin that they've done on some of the characters that they may instead of John Watson, it's Joan Watson. And just stuff like that is is just great. And the way she was his uh, sobriety sponsor in the show and right from the beginning, but, you know, reluctantly um, having her by his side initially, but then welcoming her as his partner. It's just, I love the developments. I love the, the way it's grown over the, the different seasons and um, currently partway through season six. So I've still got a few to go there and a bit of season seven. Um, and I, as I've already said, you know, psychological thrillers, that kind of thing. And actually, I really love TV shows and films that involve sort of a lot of moral questions being asked and, you know, where you have to really think about it. And maybe there isn't really a right answer. It's just, you know, one answer over another kind of thing. I love things like that. So I, I love the newsroom and, and stuff like that, where, you know, they, they try to follow what they believe is the right course of action. But sometimes that that isn't necessarily clearly defined. So, yeah, think things like that really are what stimulate me. To me, I do still play games. And in fact, there's one game which has taken uh, more of my time in the last couple of years than any other. In fact, probably any other game with a factor of 10 in the last 20 or so years. And that's a, uh, an indie game on Steam called Slay the Spire, which just happens to hit that particular perfect zeitgeist of problem solving and cards and everything else. Because I love card games. I love board games and all that stuff, as well as computer games. And this is a brilliant example of a effectively a, a deck building rogue-like card game in a computer form and so that kind of thing uh, works really well and there's a similar game which came out recently called Dicey Dungeons so I've been playing that as well and a game I've been playing most recently called Arise A Simple Story that is kind of, that, that's particularly uh, 
I really enjoyed playing that. So yeah, actually more. Yeah, I suppose these days it's more of the indie stuff. Also, I mean, I suppose from my perspective, I like where the whole the way the games just sort of came because when I first got into it in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, it was still predominantly the sort of the bedroom coder. We were sort of build, building us the bigger teams. We've sort of gone to the massive, huge teams, and now with the introduction of uh, of middleware and so forth, and and Steam and and such like, the rise again of the uh, of the bedroom coder. Uh, I just happen to think it's a it's a brilliant. I spend much more time looking at these small games than I do the. Uh, the big AAA games these days. I mean, I can't deny I do enjoy the odd triple game. I played for all the Uncharted and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, but in terms of just pure, pure, honest to good value gameplay, currently, definitely have a look at Slay the Spire. Now, if you're wanting to get into music or sound design for the video game industry, or in general, if you are wanting to get into an industry of your choice, then here's some very helpful advice. Barn starts us off, but both Bob and Barn have some wonderful tips which will help you not only make the best of your moves on the career, but also give you some great advice on how you can produce for the industry. I suppose my first thing would be learn the business side. That's the thing. Someone gave me that bit of golden advice many, many years ago. Because the thing is, what we'll do is you'll, if you'll, you'll spend your time learning the craft. Sound design, music, whatever one you particularly choose. Obviously, learn learn middleware. That's obviously another very important thing these days. It's, it makes you so much more employable if you can bring skills to the table, whoever you're working for, make their lives easier. Because middleware, WYs and FMOD, allow you to effectively do so much of the work, especially in sound design, for de- developing the whole way a, a game will sound. And in fact, in many ways, it's completely devoid and removed from the actual development of the game itself. You can even preview how it would sound and get a rough idea of how the ambience, the spot effects and phone and everything else will work together, which is much better than somebody who's simply good at making source content and then requires someone else to kind of put it in the game secondly network network is I mean, as, as i'm saying this is for me is all part of what i say the business side we all spend our time learning our craft but actually at the end of the day this is a business and the business side is how do you get work how do you negotiate contracts how do you meet people how do you network with people how do you do all those things which effectively make them choose you over someone else and for me, what makes it key is make yourself enormously employable by first get, getting off your ass and going to meet people. Email is all well and good. It's very easy to sit there and Google who, who makes the stuff in the UK and just do a blanket email. But actually, it's much better if you get off your bum and go and actually physically meet people because people will, you know, we're all human beings and every day we're going to be, it's going to be much easier for us to be able to work out whether we're going to employ someone if we've got to know them because we don't know how you're going to deal with when things don't quite go right. And you've got a much better idea of that if you've at least had a chance to meet the person, talk to them in person and actually have a conversation with them. Then at least the other bit of like, you know, make sure that you know what you're doing when it comes to the business side of things. How much work, how what's your, if you're a sound designer, you have a daily rate or you have a a sound effect rate. If you're a composer, you work out your daily rate or your minute rate or project rate, all these things and then yeah to basically make make the person you're working for make their lives easier will make you far more employable yeah i'd echo that and say um you know one thing that we've found over the years is that you know building contacts and relationships with people has led to um, us finding work and getting repeat work perhaps more so than anything else you know, it's, it's very hard to write the best score ever because that's such a massively subjective thing. You know, you of course you do your best. You do the best work you possibly can. And hopefully the people you're working with love what you do. I mean, that's that's all very important. But, but ultimately, you know, having a beer with someone, being likable, being easy to work with, uh, into, and that means, you know, turning up on time, 
um, delivering what you say you're going to deliver, when you say you're going to deliver it. Um, all of these things play a really important role in getting employed again. And it's not just about the dots on the page. But we, we found over the years, I mean, I went to a, a networking event in TV back in 2006. And we'd had very, very little chat opportunity in TV, although we, we both wanted to do more in that. But at that event, um, I'd, I tried prior to that contacting TV companies and you get all the same, always the same story, send a showreel. And it really doesn't work, to be honest, because, you know, you're just a uh, just a CD on a shelf, perhaps along with hundreds or thousands of others. You know, why are they going to pick yours? They're just not. They're probably not even going to listen to it. So, you know, getting some face time with people was very important. So I went along to this networking event. I did establish a good connection with um, with a guy called Andy Brereton who worked in uh, light entertainment at that time for Talkback Thames, but he's moved around a lot since then. But through that one connection, it's led to um, many, many, many other connections, one of which was uh, led us to Dead Pixels as it happens. So establishing a contact and establishing a, a, a friendship, actually, if you can, is is by far the, the most potent tool you've got in your bag. I'd also add to that and say, we get a lot of approaches from other composers saying, listen to my work. And the classic problem they, they do, actually, is they write music which they want to write rather than music that producers want to buy. And they somehow think that actually, it'd be so much, you know, can you, can you sell this to them? Well, no, because that's not the kind of music they want on their show. Again, just, you know, it's, it's all well and good establishing your own style, of course, but it needs to be commercially viable style. They're not no point sitting there going, well, I'm brilliant at Jewish nose flute music. Here's my uh, here's my track for my uh, for the next fantasy show because no one's going to use that. So it's a question of finding a genre which finding finding something which fits with you, but also making sure that, that genre is is something which is you know is commercially viable for TV and film or whatever you want to work on. And actually, just to touch upon something else that Barnes said there, the fact that other composers you know want to get into the industry, they're sending it to us. And actually, we are not the decision makers in this in this process. You know, there's perhaps uh, some sort of a view that we've got, you know, a list as long as your arm of projects that we're doing and we're just turning them away left, right and centre. It's not like that at all. You know, we still have to fight for every bit of work that we do. And, um, you know, we don't have work that we just palm off onto other people. So we're really not the people to be contacting with, with this stuff. It's, you know, producers and directors and so on. So I think, you know, you need to know who your audience is as well at the same time. Yeah, don't, don't write an email to me saying to whom it may concern. And just clearly, you know, make some effort. Make me feel like I'm a bit special here rather than clearly just a blanket, blanket response to everyone. Because it just, you know, it just takes a little bit of information, a little bit of thought behind it. Because I think about how I got into it, you know, I'm writing letters. I'm physically writing letters to people. I'm not going to write to whom it may concern on the top of a letter. I'm going to find out the person I need to speak to. It's just simple things like that. It's amazing how people sometimes get still get this wrong. Anyway, off my soapbox now. There we go. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to Bob and Barn about their work over the last few years, and especially with the medieval remake absolutely astounding. Thank you to both Bob and Barn for joining me for this, and of course, I just wanted to give them one last opportunity to give any thanks that they might have had. Well, it might be pertinent to um, to put a big thank you out there to everybody who supported Medieval 
actually since since day one we've we've had an awful lot of fan mail over the years from people who have wanted us to resurrect the title and believe you me if it had been our decision we would have done that a long time ago but it's it's wonderful that it's come back and it's great that people seem to be going out there and buying it and supporting it and the, the soundtrack has been well received from people and thank you for your words as well about that you know it's it's something that we've we've long since been proud of and we hope that it will keep going and we'll go on to medieval three medieval four and so on 